0: Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviolo. Welcome to a special episode of the 5 by. With the holiday season upon us, I'd like to share five games that I'm thankful for and that I'll be playing during the next month or so. These are titles that I frequently come back to and always love to share with my gaming family and friends. First, Ruth lays tiles in the wonderful Baron Park. Next, Sarah explores the universe through dice-chucking in tiny, epic galaxies. Mason rolls and writes in the pencil game Quinto. Meeple Lady dives deep into the political intrigue of Watergate, and finally John takes us on a tour de France in Flamme Rouge. On behalf of everybody here at the 5By, happy holidays!
1: Hello 5By listeners, it's Ruth here, and this week I'm going to discuss the hot new Phil Walker Harding Tow-Laying game I alluded to back in episode 12, when I talked about his game Cacao. That's right, this week I'm talking about Baron Park, published in 2017 by Mayfair Games, with illustrations by Clemens Franz. Baron Park places two to four players in the role of zoo planners, specifically planning zoos themed around bears. Well, zoos roughly themed around bears given that they've included the marsupial koalas, which has been a somewhat controversial decision. Players place tetris like tiles, representing habitats and enclosures for the four types of bear, along with amenities like food stalls, lazy rivers, and of course, the necessary porta-potties. As they complete sections of their park, they'll place valuable bear statues, until one player has fully completed four sections of their zoo, and everyone else gets one more turn to place tiles. Players then count up their points and declare a winner. One of the things I really like about the game is the way that players gain tiles as it adds an extra layer of decision making to the tile placement. You see, when you place a tile in your park, you potentially cover up symbols on your board. Symbols like a wheelbarrow, cement truck, excavator, or a construction crew. Each symbol corresponds to a type of tile that you then take from the general supply and add to your pool of available tiles for future placements. So placing a tile one way might fit well and net you an expansion board for your zoo, but rotating that tile slightly might be a less perfect fit, but let you grab the expansion board and a valuable enclosure you've been eyeing. As the habitat tiles decrease in value as they're taken, and the enclosures are all unique shapes, grabbing a tile a few turns before you plan to place it can increase your final score. This adds a timing aspect and increases the level of player interaction. The bear statues also decrease in value and can only be gained by covering all spaces of a zoo section other than the designated statue foundation, which isn't allowed to be covered. The minute a player does so, they'll grab the next statue from the stack and add it to the foundation spot. Multiple times I've seen players groaning as the player in front of them grabs the statue just before they do. And while the statues only decrease by a single point each time, it still feels like a bit of a blow. The game also includes optional achievements, which it refers to as the expert variant. As far as I'm concerned, these are not optional and shouldn't be considered expert. To use them, players simply select three of the ten different achievements, each of which has multiple tiles of varying point values. At the end of your turn, if you've met the requirements for an achievement, you simply take the highest value tile remaining. I taught the game to my relatively non-gaming mother recently, and I left in the achievement tiles, and her comment afterwards was that she liked the fact they were there, and that they gave her guidance and direction during her first few turns, as she was figuring out how the game worked and what to do. The added complexity of the tiles is fairly minimal, but the additional point scoring opportunities and that little bit of guidance are pretty welcome. And while I don't always go for the achievements, I just can't see playing without them, and I see no reason to leave them out. I will note that Baron Park has been subject to various heated conversations on social media and particularly on BoardGameGeek, and it's not just about the koalas. BGG's forums are filled with threads detailing players being left unable to finish their bear park due to other players taking all the small amenity tiles that they need to fill gaps. I can see how this might happen in your first or second plays, but to do well, players need to fit the different tiles snugly together to maximize the number of points on a board, rather than filling up with those little zero-point tiles, so it seems to be more an issue of unfamiliarity with the game than with a component count. It is frustrating that the rules don't talk about this edge case or give any guidance, but it has been stated by the designer online that if no one can play any more tiles, just end the game and count up your points. Another small rulebook issue is that in one place it references a section with an incorrect page number. It slowed me up in my first game when I couldn't find the section on what to do if you have no tiles to place at the start of your turn, but we did eventually find it just on a different page. Clearly, this one was the result of last minute changes or edits, but it's a bit aggravating when it slows up your game. And then there's the insert. If you haven't heard about Baron Park's insert, in which case I congratulate you, The insert consists of three pieces of punchboard that slot together confusingly to separate the box into three triangle sections. It's not clear where to store things, it's not intuitive to put together, and I immediately just bagged everything and said screw it. Now, I do that with most of my games anyway, so I just found the insert kind of amusing, but it can be very irritating to some people, so be warned if that's going to upset you. But rulebook issues and weird insert aside, Baron Park is an amazing little game, and it's earned a firm place in my collection. It plays in 30-45 to minutes after a really quick teach. It's easy to grasp in a first play, but you're going to keep improving with further plays. And it's smooth playing enough to allow for casually chatting while playing. You might be surprised when your turn rolls around sooner than expected, but the quick pace of the game keeps everyone engaged. It's knocked a good few games off my list of games to purchase, as I just can't see choosing Cottage Garden over Baron Park. So basically, Phil Walker Harding has done it again. He's given us a great-looking game full of satisfyingly interesting decisions that plays in less than an hour. Check it out if you haven't already. Just don't waste too much time on the insert, as wrapping your head around that one's a puzzle harder than any escape room. And until next time, you can find me on sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter as Roof. That's an R four O's and an F. Thanks for listening.
2: Scott Alms' Tiny Epic series, published by Gamelin Games, is designed to pack the experience of a big box game into a small package. There are six games in the Tiny Epic series, though only five are out, Tiny Epic Zombies won't be available until later this year. For my money, 2015's Tiny Epic Galaxies is the most successful and the most fun. As you might guess from the name, Tiny Epic Galaxies has a space theme, specifically space colonization. Planets are represented by cards. Each planet has victory points and an ability printed on it. Players use wooden spaceship meeples to land on planets, either to collect resources and use its ability, or to colonize the planet, claiming its victory points plus sole use of the planet's ability in the future. In Tiny Epic Galaxies, what you spend most of your time doing is rolling dice. I'm a sucker for custom dice, and the ones in Tiny Epic Galaxies are among the best I've seen. They're beautifully produced, with icons that are easy to read and distinguish from each other. The dice allow you to take actions, move a ship, acquire resources, advance towards colonizing a planet, use the ability of a previously colonized planet, or upgrade your empire. Upgrading costs resources and gives you more dice, more ships, and most importantly, more victory points. Dice rolling always adds an element of luck to a game, but Tiny Epic Galaxies mitigates the luck factor in several ways. But one thing, after rolling the dice, you choose what order to activate them. This can make a huge difference in how a turn plays out. Also, you can re-roll some or all of the dice, once for free, and as many times as you want by spending the energy resource. And finally, you can spend two dice to change a third to whatever face you want. Wasting dice is costly in a game where every action counts, and I tend to use it only as a last resort. But if you really need that action, you can get it. My favorite part of Tiny Epic Galaxies, what I think changes it from a good game to a great one, is the follow mechanism. Every time you activate a die, every player can choose to follow you and take the same action by spending the culture resource. As an aside, there are two resources in Tiny Epic Galaxies. They're called Energy and Culture. I have no idea why, and it doesn't matter. It's a game about space. It has energy and culture. Just roll with it. Okay, back to following. Every player can choose to follow the active player and do their actions, too, by spending one point of culture for each follow. This means that there is essentially no downtime in Tiny Epic Galaxies. As long as you've got the culture points, even in a five-player game, you are never sitting there wondering if it would be rude to check your phone. Instead, you're constantly thinking about whether to follow the action that just came up, or wait and hope the next player rolls an action you need more. And you also need to think about following on your own turn. If you and another player are both trying to colonize the same planet, but she's ahead of you, using that action might allow her to follow you and grab the planet right out from under you. It's smarter to wait until she's out of culture, and then take the action you both need when she can't follow. Tiny Epic Galaxies is deliciously crunchy. The game is not long, generally under an hour, but there's so much to think about and so many decisions to sink your teeth into. Do you build up resources to make following and upgrading easier? Or do you focus on colonizing to get victory points, which, after all, are how you win the game? Do you play defensively, trying to block other players? Or do you just go for what you need and hope to get there faster than the rest? By the end of the game, when pretty much everyone has all seven dice to work with, there are so many possibilities. At that point, the choices are usually about figuring out which path will get you that last couple of points that could mean the win. It feels like, how can I make the most of this? Which I always find very satisfying. Not the painful, How can I mitigate this mess I'm in kind of decision? Now, this crunchiness can lead to information overload. There's a lot to process and keep track of, and this can be exacerbated by which planet cards happen to come out. But in general, I find Tiny Epic Galaxies gives me just enough to think about for a game of this length, not too much. Another area where Tiny Epic Galaxies can be problematic is physical accessibility. The game's strength, packing a huge game into a small package, is also its weakness. The player mats are very small. You place several little wooden tokens on printed tracks on these mats to indicate resource levels and upgrade status. One careless reach across the table with a long sleeve and you can end up scattering these tokens. Your resource status tends to change so often that remembering where you were on each track is difficult. Ask me how I know this. I wish the game had slightly thicker player mats with niches or stamped impressions to hold the tokens in place. But this is a much larger topic than I can do justice to in a five-minute review. If you want to learn more, I encourage you to read the excellent accessibility teardown of Tiny Epic Galaxies at meeplelikeus.co.uk. All that said, I highly recommend Tiny Epic Galaxies to anyone who wants a thinky, crunchy game that doesn't take three hours to play. At its length, it fills a real need in my collection. There's a whole lot going on in that little box. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not colonizing planets, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah
3: Ovenal. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Quinto. Hobby gaming sometimes seems like an endless miasma of, which edition is this? And, no, the French version has different rules. And, yeah, but that's actually a reworked version of a Kinesia card game from 97, but with a different bidding system. There are lots of games with similar titles, games that are sequels or reissues with indistinct titles, Games with the exact same titles that have nothing to do with each other, games with the same titles save for the newer game's addition of an exclamation mark, and games with purposefully unique spellings of titles in a publisher's attempt to disambiguate and distinguish, which mostly results in more confusion and makes them difficult to Google. Quinto, Q-W-I-N-T-O, published by Nuremberger, Spielkart, and Verlag in 2015 is a tight little roll-and-write game, not to be confused with any of the three other games called Quinto, Q-U-I-N-T-O. One of those is forgettable and probably junk, one is a forgotten 90s Sid Saxon card game with publisher Butchered Rules, and one is the magnificent 1964 3M bookshelf title that's basically just math scrabble. Highly recommend that one, uh, one of my favorite 3M games. Roll and write games, and I prefer the term pencil games, have hotted up in the last three years to the degree that I'm largely bored by the announcement of new ones, especially very complex ones. I think that speaks to a larger personal problem I have. The more someone tells me I should like something, the more I want to hate it. Probably correlated to my low-level oppositional defiance, but, you know, who knows. I do still love a clean and simple pencil game that gives me choices, but doesn't ask me to remember a complex rule set or scoring system. Quix, available pretty much everywhere, is a great example of this kind of direct and easily teachable pencil game. Quinto borrows some ideas from Quix, they are both from the same publisher, but for us, Quinto does it better, so let's get into why. Quinto is three dice and a piece of paper. You're rolling the dice and choosing to put the summed rolls in one of three rows, red, yellow, or blue. If you roll the red and blue dice together, you can put the sum in a spot on the red or blue lines. If you roll all three, you can put the sum on any lines. Numbers have to run ascending left to right, and the game is over when you fill two lines. You won't. Or crap out by not being able to place four of your rolls. This is how the game is going to end. There's not a lot of emergence in Quinto, and for once I think that's actually a good thing. Everyone has the same information, and most of the same opportunities. On your turn, you must write down the sum of your rolls. On everyone else's turn, you have the choice to write down their roll. Now in a roundabout way, especially for a dice game, it's almost perfect information. You're free to look at other people's score sheets, though we choose not to, and all players have access to every roll, provided they've made good choices and have space available on their sheets. I do think there's a slight learning curve to Quinto. You have to choose every turn which combination of dice to roll, and those early rolls are often critical in setting up and spacing out your scoring opportunities. At the end of the game, you get points for each number you filled in, and extra points if you filled the line completely. You also score for key columns completed in addition to the rows. There are a couple of different paths to points in Quinto, and players who excel at order and planning should do fairly well. I like that Quinto is a dice-rolling game that's not particularly exciting. Now, it's fun and challenging and easy to pick up and play, but it doesn't really require a ton of emotional energy. It's often our go-to game when we just can't think of anything else to play. Because it's quick and very rules-light and still actively engages your mind, we found it to be a great stress reliever. In Quinto, Bernard Locke and Uwe Ropp have designed a game that seems so simple that it feels like it's not designed, which for me is usually a sign of a good game. I've played a lot, and I mean a lot, of amateur-designed pencil games, and far too often they're filled with extensive dice mitigation options. Quinto is short enough that I don't want reroll or plus-one options to use. I've not kept many of the more complex pencil games we've tried, partially because they often overstay their welcome, have too many extra components, or just pack so much into a small sheet that it ruins everything I like about the genre. I really thought I wanted medium-weight, Euro-style pencil games, but apparently I was wrong. I'm sure other people love them, but they've all just left me largely indifferent. Quinto shines in a space that lets me use my higher functions for choice and light strategy instead of just trying to remember a bunch of rules. Quinto has recently become available in the U.S. from Pandasaurus, and is widely sold for between $10 and $15. It comes in a little box, and the sheets aren't very large, so we mostly play with laminated copies of the custom-made score sheets posted on BoardGameGeek. You could, of course, just laminate the sheets that come in it, but I prefer printing on cardstock before laminating, as it tends to wrinkle less and hold up a little longer. So, who should play Quinto? People who like Quicks, People who like Sudoku, which I suppose are both just people who like putting numbers in order, and people who like casual games to share with coworkers in the break room, family at the holidays, and strangers in places that Twilight Imperium or Age of Steam just won't fit. I give Quinto 3 out of 3 primary colored dice that might be a slight problem in low light for our color vision impaired listeners that I forgot to mention until just now, but that I think are probably okay in most normal lighting situations. I'm Mason Weaver, you can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost.
4: When I first heard that Capstone Games was releasing a game on former President Nixon and the Watergate scandal, I immediately knew I had to play this game political history, and journalism. Well, for those who know me in real life, this is exactly right in my wheelhouse. Watergate, published in 2019 and designed by Matthias Kramer, is a two-player, card-driven game that plays in about 30 to 60 minutes. It's similar to one of my absolute favorite games, Twilight Struggle, but it's much less punishing while still maintaining that historic tug-of-war feel of the scandal, and in a fraction of the time. In Watergate, one player plays the side of a Washington Post editor trying to connect Nixon to his informers, while Nixon is trying to hang on to his presidency and not resign. Each player gets their own individual deck of cards to play with, and a small evidence board that contains a research track sits between the players. There are also cards that keep track of Nixon's and the newspaper's win conditions as well as who gets the initiative for the round. The player with the initiative will draw five cards in that round and go first, whereas the other player only gets four cards. On your turn, you play one card, either for its value part or its action part. The value part shows a number that you can move either the initiative or momentum token toward you on the research track, or move an evidence token the same number of spaces as well. There are three random evidence tokens placed face down on the research track at the start of the round. They get flipped face up when they move, and these tokens are important for the editor to connect Nixon to his informants on the board or for Nixon to block those connections. The evidence board looks like a giant corkboard with a bunch of lines and push pins printed on it. When either side claims an evidence token, either by placing it on the five spot on their side of the research track or when the round ends. It's placed on the board face-up by the editor or face-down by Nixon. As the board fills up, it starts to look like one of those investigation boards you see often in the movies when someone is trying to uncover a conspiracy and connect all the dots. Also, instead of using the value part when you play a card, you can play the action portion. Sometimes these actions are one-time events that are so powerful that you then have to remove the card from the game. These cards are also how you get informants onto the board. Each informant has exactly two cards. Nixon has one, and the editor has one. If Nixon plays his card first, the informant is placed face down on the board, thereby closing off that pathway to victory for the editor. After all the cards are played, the round ends. Momentum and initiative tokens are awarded to the side they're sitting on, and evidence tokens are placed by their respective winners as well. The rounds continue until one side reaches their objective. Nixon manages to gain five momentum markers on his card, or the editor connects Nixon to two informants on the evidence board. Unlike other card-driven games, Watergate gives each side their own player deck to cycle from, and playing your cards does not trigger good things for your opponent. And while I've heard some criticism of not having a large deck to cycle through and people getting too familiar with all the cards, I think this is a benefit. As when players get more familiar with the game, there's additional built-up tension bracing for that one particular card that your opponent still hasn't played that could totally mess with you. What I particularly love about this game is that you and your opponent can play a game and then switch sides and play another game immediately, and it still hasn't taken up your entire evening. It also has a small footprint that can easily be set up and taken down, The box is small, about the size of a personal pizza box, or for those who are familiar, a patchwork box. I love seeing all the historical figures brought together in this tug-of-war game that is very easy to get into. The rulebook and the text on the cards are well done, and there's even a lot of supplemental information about the scandal in the back of the rulebook. And if you're interested in more of the Watergate scandal, I'd highly recommend watching All the President's Men a movie about the two journalists investigating the Watergate scandal whose reporting helped bring down the Nixon presidency. Gay journalism. And that's Watergate. Thanks, Capstone Games, for sending me a copy of this game. This is Meeple Lady for the 5-by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! The French countryside
5: scrolls past you as you pump harder and try to catch up to the pack of riders ahead of you. In the distance, further down the road is the Flamme Rouge, the flag that signals the last kilometer of the race. It's time to give it your all and cross that finish line. Flamme Rouge is a game for 2-4 players from Stronghold Games. It was designed by Asker Granerud and features illustrations by Ossie Heikala. In Flamme Rouge, players race down a modular track striving to be the first player to reach the finish line. Each player gets two cyclist miniatures, two decks of energy cards, and a charming player board to keep things tidy. One of your riders in Flamme Rouge is a Ruler, which in the bicycle racing world means that they are suited for all types of terrain. Your other rider is a Sprinter, a rider that's good at sprinting. The Sprinter and the rollers' card decks reflect their respective riding styles. The Ruler's cards range in value from 3 to 7, while the Sprinter's cards have values of 2, 3, 4, 5, and 9. During a round, each player draws 4 cards from one of their two energy decks and chooses one to play. They then do the same for their other rider's deck. Once each player has chosen a card for each of their riders, everyone reveals their cards and starting with the rider in the lead, movement is applied. Energy cards represent the effort your rider is putting into the race, so if you decide to play a 6, your rider moves up 6 spaces down the track. The card you just used for movement is permanently removed from the deck, so managing your cards is super important. The other cards you drew are placed face-up at the bottom of the deck. Once you cycle through your deck and those face-up cards turn up, you then shuffle the deck. But the game isn't just about drawing cards and playing your highest card. Much like in the actual sport of competitive cycling, you have to pace yourself in order to avoid burning out. Or so I assume, I've never been a follower of the sport. The last time I rode a bike, which was sometime in the 90s, I veered off a trail to avoid flying off a cliff and ended up hitting a tree. But that's neither here nor there. After all players have moved their riders, slipstreaming happens. Starting with the riders in the back, groups of riders that are exactly one space behind another pack of riders move up a space, joining the group that's ahead of them. Slipstreaming is handy because not only does it get you closer to the finish line, it's a great way to add some value to your cards. In a game where you're constantly discarding cards, gaining a point of movement here or there is pretty crucial. If you're the foremost player in a pack, you add an exhaustion card with a value of 2 to your deck. If you're constantly playing your highest cards and pulling away from the pack, you're adding punitive cards to your deck and you'll eventually start drawing more and more of these low-value cards. Which makes thematic sense. After all, if you keep pushing yourself to the limit and are constantly concerned with being in the lead, you're going to burn out. There's also terrain to keep in mind in Flamme Rouge. Mountain zones affect the amount of energy you gain from cards. This is another nice touch where theme and mechanisms converge. If you're starting on, moving through, or ending on a red mountain zone, all energy cards are capped off at two movement points. These red mountain zones represent an ascent up the mountain that taxes your energy reserves. There's also blue mountain zones that let you boost the performance of your energy cards. Thematically, these areas represent going downhill. So, playing a low value card while in the blue zone will boost that card up to a 5. Playing a card that's higher than a 5 in a blue zone will still net you its full value. But you want to use those low value cards in order to squeeze out more movement points. Strategic use of your lower value cards comes in handy here and a well timed 2 can add some value to your deck, saving those stronger cards for later. The card play in Flam Rouge encourages you to constantly consider the state of the board. Finding the perfect moment to break away from a pack to join the pack that's ahead of you makes for some interesting choices. Of course, carrying out such maneuvers is always subject to your hand of energy cards as well as the other player's card selections. There's a good amount of input randomness in Flamme Rouge, so players who are averse to such randomness might think about steering away from this otherwise excellent game. The game offers a good amount of variability with six suggested track layouts. There's also more track designs online from an unofficial app that also has a campaign mode. I really enjoy Flam Rouge for what it is, a racing game that's approachable, quick to teach, and looks great on the table. It's a game you can bring to most game nights and teach in about 10 minutes. It offers the thrill and excitement of the last kilometer of a long distance race in about an hour and keeps you indoors and in the relative safety of your home. For The 5 i I'm John Gonzalez. Let's connect online. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram as BookOfNerds. Thanks for listening.
0: You've been listening to The 5 by, your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews, and proud member of the Inside Voices Network. Follow us on Twitter at 5 Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 buygames Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or visit our website at 5bygames.com. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash 5bygames. From all of us at the 5by, thanks for listening.